I'd like to start with an analogy. The most powerful cognitive shift can happen when an astronaut turns back in space flight to view the Earth. You know, in that moment, all boundaries fall away, clouds of difference part to reveal this planet that we all share, and this is called the overview effect. And the shift in awareness can be so great that many view the astronauts' perspective of the Earth as the key to sustainability and world peace. And this is why the photograph Earthrise is one of the most influential photographs ever taken. This was taken by astronauts in the Apollo 8 mission, and they were turning in lunar orbit to look at the Earth. And this image went as close to viral as an image could at the time. It was flooded by international media across the planet. It's so powerful, it is said to have helped launch the environmental movement. And the reason this image was so powerful, it was the first time we'd seen the fragility, the beauty, the loneliness of our world hanging there in space. But more importantly, it brought to our eyes and minds this global mindset that we're part of an interconnected system. So let's stay in space for a minute. We're floating above our world, looking down at the countries, cities, the office lights flickering. And then if we zoom in, there you are sitting at your desk or on your way to work, one small cog in an international business machine. Whether it's colleagues, clients or customers, you're dealing with people all over the world. And to succeed in our new global workplace, there are new upskilling initiatives. And that slightly jargony phrase, upskilling, has suddenly started to appear everywhere. I'm noticing it all the time. And maybe that's because it refers to something useful, although learning new skills and making yourself more employable is something that we used to call just training. And not to get too deep about it, but the future of work depends on employers helping more of us become more skilled in tech, communication, and actually just plain listening skills. A report from the World Economic Forum has suggested that 40% of the core skills in the average job will change in the next five years, and that's a lot. So to help us succeed in doing that, there are retraining consultants coming out of the woodwork. Just go on LinkedIn, they're everywhere. And it's a big industry. But is it worth the time, the money and the hassle for you as a manager or leader? Or are we just lining consultants' pockets? I'm Isabel Berwick, and today on Working It, I'm joined by Emma Jacobs, FT Features writer and columnist. Emma, have we seen any particular upskilling or reskilling trends after the pandemic is eased off? I think that there was a real concern after two years of the pandemic that people weren't picking up skills in the way that they would by sitting in the office. There's been a lot of discussion about going back to the office so that particularly young people can learn on the job and learn by being in meetings. And the whole remote working thing really put a focus on how to do training in a kind of intentional way rather than a casual just happened to be in the room sort of way. And also a lot of companies were in crisis mode and they had to make people do jobs that they were unfamiliar with. Some departments got idle or closed down and it meant that other people had to relocate into different jobs, which meant them learning skills quickly. So I think there is a focus on skills now. And obviously there's always these World Economic Forum reports saying that there aren't enough digital skills and people need to adapt to technology. Otherwise, we're all doomed. It's interesting. In the pandemic, I did lots of panels with people about this sort of thing. And I remember IKEA had redeployed their restaurant staff to customer care and lots of banks and 
retail type people have moved people into sort of technology facing office roles. So I think it has been going on a pace. But I'm just trying to think about whether more generally have we done any upskilling training or in more creative industries, a lot of the upskilling training is focused more on personal development. I mean, I think we've had classes on resilience and things like that, but not during the pandemic. There's been a kind of more of a knowledge transfer between employees and, you know, this is how I dealt with a news story, this is how I edit, and this is what we look for when you're pitching a story. I think those sort of sessions are really useful. So going back to what you were saying about the lack of people being next to each other, we, like many companies, have become much more intentional about how we share that knowledge. People that I spoke to say managers, instead of just sitting in a room with them and hoping that they'd overhear a conversation, they would be quite explicit. So they'd come out of a virtual meeting and give the trainee five minutes on what happened and how they could improve or what was the sort of subtext in that meeting, which they might not have done before. or They might have had it in a very kind of casual way on the way back to the office or from the meeting room. So I think there's been a real thought about being intentional. And I also think that the role of the manager has been highlighted during the pandemic, that we've asked them to do everything bit like a therapist, being conscious of my childcare needs. And it's sort of interesting to see how the roles broadened out and whether it'll become much more focused back on just the transactional nature of work. Yeah, it's like many things at the moment. It's all kind of in a state of flux. But the bigger question, I suppose, is why do people need to upskill now? And I spoke to Raul Sanchez and Dan Bullock, who are two New York University professors, and they specialise in upskilling for the global workforce. And for them, the pandemic, as we've just discussed, Emma, has made employee training more important than ever. Here's Raul. We have these gaps in digital skills, but we still have gaps in behavioural skills, which is where intercultural communication falls and leadership and so on. But now after the pandemic, we're seeing these other skills come up that are needed, such as resiliency training or agility or flexibility, emotional intelligence. Studies have shown that people now, in addition to factors such as salary and promotion, are also thinking about things like purpose. You know, what is my purpose in my work? What are the values that connect me to this organization? So upskilling is a way to say, here you have a career path at this organization. On the other hand, as well, with diversity, you know, in terms of thinking about diversity and inclusion, upskilling is a way to ensure that through cross-training, for example, that we are giving access and opportunity to every member of the workforce. And so this is another way to sort of build that long-term career path, growth, and potential. So I think in those two areas, this is where you will find that there will be more retention, the great retention instead of the great resignation, hopefully. That's an interesting angle, Emma, that he's talking about training as a form of retention. Is that viable during the great resignation slash great reshuffle? I think that it can be key to retention. The sort of drawback is that if you create good training and people get energised by that and then they go back to their boring job that they weren't enjoying anyway, but they've got this layer of new skills layered on top of it, then that kind of creates a false expectation. So in an ideal world, you'd be training in tandem with career development, but that doesn't always sync up. There's quite a lot of employers, in fact, when I was doing panels during the pandemic, there was a lot of concern raised about reskilling the workforce because it's a big investment and then people take those skills and leave. But you're right, if you 
give them those skills and they actually think that's part of my viable career path and actually that your employer cares about you. And there was a survey the other day, I think by Gallup, that showed only one in four American workers thinks their company thinks anything of their well-being, which is, I don't know if that's shockingly low or what I should expect, but I would imagine that anything to do with training is really going to bump those figures up. There's always a risk that you give someone a pay rise, they can use that as a negotiating tactic to leave for a bigger pay rise somewhere else. There's always risk when it comes to these developments. I wrote a bit about it the other day in the Stay interview where people feel that if they're valued and they can see progression, then they're more likely to stay at the company. And so just to clarify, a Stay interview is the new hot thing. Can you just explain to listeners (laughs) what it is? So the Stay interview is kind of like the exit interview, but rather the exit interview is the interview that you do when you're about to leave. And either you say, I hate everything about this place, or you say... Actually, I can't really be bothered to give you proper feedback because I'm going anyway. There's nothing in it for me. But a stay interview is more about what would make you stay at this company? What do I need to do to make you stay? And that could mean anything from a pay rise or career development. And it could mean I love my employer, but I'm just bored of this role. I need to be in a different department. Right. So before we even think about training and reskilling or upskilling, this is a really good idea, I think, for people to do with their teams. The best line managers I've had have been ones that have thought, how can I set you up to get your next great job rather than what can I do to keep you under my thumb and toiling away for me? Yeah, all of this. I'm not saying this to you. (laughs) That's my line manager. No, we're toiling away here. But I do think there's something really profound here also in terms of ageism and diversity because a lot of the training opportunities right across the board go to younger people. I think there's twice as many opportunities for younger people according to one report I read. So I think there's an opportunity here to overcome ageism which is becoming an increasing problem in the workplace and also the diversity thing. You know there's so many companies talk about not having a pipeline of people from minorities and different backgrounds. But actually with reskilling in tech skills or other skills, surely that's a very quick win, I would have thought. Well, I was talking to an HR person the other day who was talking about this concept of learning on the job and of overhearing stuff. And she said so much of the focus has been on young people. I mean, I don't want to sound like an old whining person. But, but we can. You know, oh, yes. I do feel like they get all the training opportunities, you know. And actually sometimes there's a fear for an older person to say, actually, I need some training because it kind of feeds into that whole imposter syndrome is like, well, they'll find out that I don't know loads of stuff or, you know, what have you got? It's the kind of, it can be very defensive, like you've got nothing to teach me. I mean, that isn't true and it shouldn't be true and that everyone should be able to learn things however old they are. I helped a colleague to learn to use the printer yesterday, so that was a... Do you want to name them? (laughs) No, I'm not going to name them. (laughs) We've talked a lot about internally in companies, but the world needs a lot more skilled people. There's a massive shortage of skills globally. And I talked to Dan on why this global aspect is really important. I think just the world is becoming more global and these intercultural skills are going to be very key being able to understand different contexts. And again, it's not just going to a specific country and saying, okay, I'm traveling to this specific region of the world, so how should I greet? How should I do this? Because that's what a lot of books tend to put out. 
If we look at the International Space Station, right, that's the perfect example of a global team. You have people from different nations that are up there expected to work together, to problem solve together. And again, lives are at stake in that capacity. The same thing could happen in terms of Antarctica as well. But the idea is making sure that you have the appropriate skills. It's no longer just the person in play. It's whoever possesses the best quality of that skill, we should put on that team. And that's how we're going to carry things forward. One area that we've seen come up is global English. Global English is essentially a purposeful type of English that's adopted by the global business world that's focused on clear and plain language. So at most multinational organizations, all the way up to the United Nations, you're thinking about an English that's optimized for a global audience. So thinking about cutting out idioms like cut and dry off the top of my head or, you know, Americans enjoy cultural references to baseball. Let's level the playing field that came out of left field. And also, you know, another would be phrasal verbs. These are two word verbs that function as a verb like draw up or get ahead. And then in the trainings, we say, no, actually just use a single word verb, like instead of drop the contract, write the contract, draft the contract. So in an area such as global English, this can be quite efficient to do in a micro learning context. But for example, if I were to tell you, could I master or empathy for five minutes a day or cognitive flexibility, you know, that requires more of an arc. You can still have it scaffolded in chunks, but you would need a longer arc to really achieve that type of behavioral development. And at the end of the day, our companies are not strategy, right? But companies are people. We are essentially humans at work. And with upskilling, and particularly with a skill like negotiation, when you go up to the level of the United Nations, you're thinking more about diplomacy. You know, we're not in a world of competitors anymore in the globalized era. We want to turn competitors into partners. And so once we have that larger picture in mind, I think this is what the future of work really is going to be. It's not simply about working effectively with one another, but also evolving our human relationships and our human society. I really like that space station example and that Raoul and Dan have brought in the idea of global English. So I, I hadn't really thought about learning English as a kind of reskilling or upskilling or almost a diversity point. But maybe it is, I mean, as a native English speaker, the key to all sorts of future of work trends. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I suppose we have written about it at the FT and we have a colleague called Mike Skapinka, who I'll link to in the show notes, who wrote about this a lot. And there is this phenomenon of countries that are not headquartered in Anglophone countries who have mandated English as their business language. And then they've gone down this sort of massive cultural shift where they've had to get their employees. And I, I'm thinking here of uh, Rakuten, a Japanese headquartered company to get all their employees up to a certain standard of English. I mean, that's a massive upskilling initiative, isn't it? That's huge. <laughs> I was interested in them talking about resilience training as well. I feel uneasy about resilience training just because how much resilience do you need to do a white-collar job? I mean, it's not going to battle. And why should you create an environment that's so hazardous that you need to fortify yourself to do it? And also confidence training is something that is often given to women. I mean, I guess a lot of the training when it comes to softer skills is often individualising the problem rather than looking at the organisation like so many things we talked about on the podcast. The idea that you confidence your way up to success rather than the structures around you changing or people seeing you. I suppose that's a key thing, I think, for the future of reskilling and upskilling. It is about giving people the tools they need to succeed 
within a structure that's changing exactly rather than forcing people to change to fit a <laughs> fit their structure. structure. But are we in danger of stepping too far into the personal if you're mandating people to learn to speak English or to be more empathetic and improve their communication skills, all that kind of stuff, be more resilient? Is it blurring the boundaries even further between our home and our work lives? You, you're writing on this at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I don't know where the line will settle. The pandemic has been a massive shake-up and pushed the boundary of the employer into the personal a lot more. All of this raises really interesting issues. So it's not just about teaching someone a new software programme. Reskilling could be the answer to helping people feel more purpose and well-being at work. And it actually gets away from some of the what we might call woo-woo stuff that people are not so interested in about, you know, let's have a bit of a mindfulness break. If you're actually giving people something tangible that's going to help their career, make them feel better, make them feel invested, give them a stay interview, as we've discussed. Mm. And I just think all of these things might be the key to well-being and improve economic output and engagement. It could be the sort of panacea for everything. I think that's the case. People like work. Work gives them a reason to get up every day. Not to be Pollyanna-ish about it, but, you know, in my most miserable periods, work's given me a structure and a purpose for getting out the house. And that's really useful. And people want to feel engaged. And training is part of it. It's kind of a boring view of it, but I mean, it is true. It's it's true. And I don't think we say it enough because, as you say, it's not quite as sexy as, uh, I don't know. What is sexy at work? I don't know. (laughs) Yoga? (laughs) Yoga. Free food? (laughs) Free food. Free foods is very good. With thanks to Raul Sanchez and Dan Bullock and special thanks to Emma Jacobs for this episode. Please do get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. We're at workingitatft.com or with me at Isabel Berwick on Twitter. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times. With thanks to the producer Anna Sinfield and executive producer Joe Wheeler. We have editorial direction from the FT's Renee Kaplan and production support from Persis Love. And finally, before we go, if you're tired of doom scrolling and searching through endless news feeds, the FT's launched a new iPhone app to help you read less and understand more. FT Edit features eight pieces of in-depth journalism every day, handpicked by senior editors to inform, explain and surprise. It's available now for iPhone users. Just search FT Edit in the App Store. Your first month is free and it's 99p a month for six months after that. We think it's time well read. 